You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Presently, General Jackson pulled up suddenly, wheeled and galloped toward us. Here he comes, by God, said several, and Jackson rode up to the assembled group as calm as a May morning and touching his hat in a military salute, said in a soft voice as if he had been talking to a friend in ordinary conversation, Bring out your men, gentlemen. Every officer whirled round and scurried back into the woods at full gallop. The men had been watching their officers with as much interest as they had been watching Jackson, and when they wheeled and dashed towards them, they knew what it meant, and from the woods arose a hoarse roar like that from cages of wild beasts at the scent of blood. In an incredibly short time, long columns of glittering brigades like huge serpents glided out upon the open field to be as quickly deployed into lines of battle. Then all advanced in as perfect order as if they had been on parade, their bayonets sparkling in the light of the setting sun and their red battle flags dancing gaily in the breeze. Then came trotting out the rumbling artillery to positions on the flanks, where they quickly unlimbered and prepared for action. It made one's blood tingle to see these troops going into action, as light-hearted and gay as if they were going to a dancing party, not with the senseless fun of a recruit who knew not what to expect, but with the confidence of veterans who had won every battle they ever fought. Captain William W. Blackford, Staff, Major General Jeb Stewart. Just as we looked ahead from the cut in the road, we saw a light battery going into position at the double quick. One of the boys marching beside Gus Klein remarked to him, That don't look like any of our batteries. Gus replied, See here, except for a few skirmishes, we've never been in a fight. This damn war will be over and we'll never get into a battle. Just as he concluded his remarks, a 12-pound shell came from that battery over the heads of our regiment. Colonel Cutler ordered the 6th to lie down. We all dropped in place, and the shells came thick and fast, and we hugged the ground. Then we heard to our left the rip, rip, rip of heavy infantry fire. Adjutant General Wood of Gibbon's staff rode up and saluted our colonel, saying so our company could hear it. Colonel Cutler... With the compliments of General Gibbon, you will form your regiment by battalion front, advance, and join on the right of the 7th, and engage the enemy. The regiment advanced in line of battle across the field. Soon we heard a rip-rip, and did not fully realize the situation until the boys began to fall. Halt! Right dress! Ready! Aim! Fire! and the old sixth gave a volley that awoke a cheer from the other three regiments and a corresponding yell from the other side. And that yell, there is nothing like it this side of the infernal region, and the peculiar, 
corkscrew sensation that it sends down your backbone under these circumstances can never be told. You have to feel it. And if you say you did not feel it and heard the yell, you have never been there. Private Philip Cheek, 6th Wisconsin Infantry, Gibbons Brigade. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 176 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. In the last show, we looked at Stonewall Jackson's capture of the Big Union Supply Depot at Manassas Junction on August 27, 1862. That same night, as flames from the burning supply depot lit the sky, Stonewall made his next move one that would result in the second climactic battle on the already bloodied ground west of Bull Run. Jackson's plan was simple, with John Pope finally on the move, aiming to trap Stonewall at Manassas Junction, Jackson would withdraw from that place and concentrate his three divisions on the old Bull Run battlefield seven miles to the north, where he would await the arrival of Robert E. Lee and James Longstreet. By dawn on Thursday, August 28th, the first of Stonewall's tired troops had reached the old battlefield and lay down to snatch what little rest they could, on fields still littered with debris and shallow graves from the first Battle of Manassas a year before. As the rest of his command arrived, Jackson sought a hidden position. He began shifting units toward Stony Ridge, a wooded crest just north of the Warrenton Turnpike and the tiny hamlet of Groveton. That spot on the northwestern edge of the old battlefield was an ideal point from which to lash out at any unsuspecting Yankee column headed for Manassas Junction, and it was a position made all the more formidable by the presence of an unfinished railroad line that furnished some of Stonewall's troops with a ready-made defensive breastwork. That same morning, John Pope was still hurting the disparate elements of his com command toward Manassas Junction, where he was certain he would corner Stonewall. Among the forces converging on the junction was Irvin McDowell's Third Corps, which was moving eastward on the Warrenton Turnpike, on a route that would take it right past Jackson's hidden rebels. Irvin McDowell, as you guys will no doubt recall, had commanded the Union Army at the First Battle of Manassas in July of 1861. Now, a little over a year later, as McDowell marched along the Warrenton Turnpike, he was commanding the Third Corps in John Pope's Army of Virginia. McDowell didn't march at full strength, however, since he'd gotten word from Brigadier General John Beaufort's cavalry that a rebel force was approaching Thoroughfare Gap some ten miles to his rear. And so McDowell had dispatched one of his three divisions, the one commanded by James B. Ricketts, to keep an eye on that key pass through the Bull Run Mountains. As y'all will recall, Lee and Longstreet were following Stonewall's line of march, coming up behind Jackson so that the two wings of the Confederate Army might be reunited. 
On the afternoon of the 28th, when the vanguard of Longstreet's column approached Thoroughfare Gap, the lead rebel troops encountered not only Yankee cavalry, but also Ricketts' infantry deploying to meet them. For several critical hours, the Federals disputed the passage of Longstreet's troops through the gap until the Confederates finally managed to scale the difficult slopes nearby and outflank their stubborn foes. As John Hennessy points out in his book, Return to Bull Run, the Campaign and Battle of Second Manassas, John Pope failed to understand the strategic opportunity offered him by a proper defense of Thoroughfare Gap. Pope should have rushed a stronger force to the spot to put up a real defense of the critical pass through the mountains. But Stonewall, and Stonewall alone, consumed Pope's thinking. And so by failing to really dispute Longstreet's passage through the Bull Run Mountains, Pope missed the chance, his best chance, to do serious damage to Lee's plan. Irvin McDowell, to his credit, realized the importance of Thoroughfare Gap, but bound as he was by Pope's marching orders, he could mount no more than a half-hearted, belated effort to defend it with Ricketts' division. For that, Lee and Longstreet were thankful. The firing at Thoroughfare Gap ended as evening was fast approaching, and the unmistakable sound of battle in the distance, off to the east, alerted Lee and Longstreet to the fact that Stonewall was involved in a fight. The distant sound of heavy firing meant there was no possibility of further delay. They had to reach Stonewall by morning. When Lee and Longstreet heard the sound of distant firing, they knew fighting was going on, but what they didn't know was that Stonewall himself had picked the fight. He had been watching from cover that afternoon when McDowell's Federals on the Warrenton Turnpike approached the Old Bull Run Battlefield and Stony Ridge, where Jackson's troops lay concealed just north of the road. A detachment screening Stonewall's line opened fire on John F. Reynolds' division, which was the vanguard of the Yankee Column. After a brief skirmish, the rebels pulled back to the north, and McDowell, who considered the affair an insignificant incident, continued on his march. As Reynolds turned south, taking the road to Manassas Junction, Rufus King's division came up, approaching the scene of the just-concluded skirmish. McDowell was still unaware that 24,000 Confederates were hovering just beyond his left flank. At about 5 p.m., before King's division could follow Reynolds, McDowell received orders to abandon the move to Manassas and instead march due east for Centerville. The confused meanderings of two of Stonewall's divisions the night before, when they had gotten lost after leaving the junction, now had Pope convinced that it was actually at Centerville that he would finally snare Jackson. After issuing new orders, McDowell rode off to confer with Pope. When McDowell departed, command of the column fell to Rufus King, who was unwell since he was still recovering from an epileptic seizure that he had suffered earlier during the campaign. On the evening of August 28th, at about 6 o'clock, King suffered another seizure. It couldn't have happened at a worse time. It would be hours before King would recover sufficiently to resume command. But for a critical span of time, his division would be without a commander. His unfortunate and untimely seizure came when King's division was strung out over more than a mile on the Warrenton Pike, 
and none of his subordinates were aware that he had been laid low and completely unable to exercise command. They would know only that when they needed him during the three desperate hours that followed, they'd be unable to find him. In King's March column, which was approaching the small settlement of Groveton, John P. Hatch's brigade was moving along in the lead. Behind Hatch tramped one of the only pure western brigades serving east of the Alleghenies. It was comprised of one Indiana and three Wisconsin regiments. They were commanded by Brigadier General John Gibbon, a tough veteran of the pre-war regular army. 34-year-old John Gibbon was born in Pennsylvania, but later moved to North Carolina. He graduated from West Point in 1847 and fought in the war with Mexico. When the Civil War began in 1861, Gibbon chose to remain loyal to the Union, but three of his brothers signed up to fight for the Confederacy. Gibbon had been assigned to command his all-Western Brigade in May of 1862, and he drilled his men endlessly and worked hard to instill in them a certain esprit de corps. This included distinctive uniforms of the regular army style, including the plumed, black felt, hardy hats. Because of their distinctive headgear, Gibbon's men were known as the Black Hat Brigade. Following Gibbon in the column was Abner Doubleday's mixed brigade of New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians. At the rear of King's column trudged the brigade of Marcena Patrick. It was nearly 6 p.m., and the unsuspecting Yankees passing eastward below him presented Stonewall with a target he'd been waiting for, and with the words, Bring out your men, gentlemen. Jackson sprang the trap. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. While Confederate artillery pieces opened fire on the startled Yankee column below, Tolliver's and Ewell's divisions emerged from the timber on Stony Ridge and moved forward in line of battle across the fields of the John Bronner farm. The sudden rain of exploding shells threw the surprised Federals on the Warrenton Turnpike into confusion. 
Uncertain of what to do next, Hatch halted his brigade near Groveton. Patrick's untested units at the tail end of the column fell into confusion and sought shelter in the woods south of the pike. Doubleday and Gibbon shifted their troops off the road, while Gibbon, the only brigade commander to take the initiative, ordered up artillery and sent his most experienced unit, Colonel Edgar O'Connor's 2nd Wisconsin, north of the pike to drive off the rebel guns. An onlooker later said that, quote, Within one minute all was enveloped in smoke, and a sheet of flame seemed to go out from each side to the other the whole length of the line. End quote. In the already fading twilight, the 450 Wisconsin soldiers collided with the 800 men of the Stonewall Brigade, and as the opposing sides blazed away at a range of 80 yards, Gibbon hurried forward his remaining regiments. Jackson countered by lengthening his own line, and although the Confederates threatened to turn the Union flanks, especially on the left, nevertheless Stonewall failed to break the stubborn Yankees, who resolutely stood their ground. Gibbon pleaded with his fellow brigade commanders for help, but with Rufus King mysteriously absent, only Doubleday responded. He sent two of his regiments to aid Gibbon's Midwesterners. The arrival of Doubleday's regiments completed the federal deployment. For nearly half a mile, from the left were the 19th Indiana and 2nd Wisconsin grappled with the Stonewall Brigade, to the right were the 6th Wisconsin and Isaac Trimble's Georgians, North Carolinians, and Alabamians fired blindly at each other's muzzle flashes, the lines were locked in a bloody struggle. In the rapidly fading light, with men kneeling, lying prone, or taking what shelter they could behind fence lines and clumps of brush, the opposing ranks slugged it out in one of the most brutal toe-to-toe fights of the entire war. Tolliver later recalled the scene, saying, quote, they stood as immovable as the painted heroes in a battle piece. Out in the sunlight, in the dying daylight, and under the stars they stood, and although they could not advance, they would not retire. There was much discipline in this, but there was much more of true valor. All in all, for a man who had been anxiously waiting all day for an opportunity to strike at Pope, Stonewall Jackson was surprisingly unprepared to pounce when the chance came. Although he possessed a three-to-one numerical advantage, Jackson mismanaged this fight, as he had others, on the tactical level, and he was unable to bring his numbers to bear. Finally, Stonewall attempted to mount a general assault, a frontal attack, at half-past seven, but in the near darkness the rebel units went forward piecemeal, and the charge was repulsed thirty yards from the Federal battle line. The Confederates suffered a staggering number of casualties at Bronner's Farm, among them many senior officers. Tolliver and Dick Yule were wounded. The next day, Yule's left leg would be amputated. Two regimental commanders in the Stonewall Brigade were killed. One company of the 21st Georgia lost 40 of 45 men, and the 26th Georgia in Lawton's Brigade suffered a casualty rate of 72%. Frustrated, Jackson made a last effort to roll up the Union line. He shoved a brigade toward the enemy's left, but he couldn't make any further headway. Gradually, the flashes of musketry subsided in the deepening gloom of night, and with darkness, the murderous fight at Bronner's farm ended in stalemate. 
the continuous roll of musketry degenerated into a crackle and then to isolated shots until finally even that tapered off and there was nothing except the heart-rending cries and groans of the wounded and dying. Each side had lost some 1,300 men, but Stonewall had clearly missed an opportunity to cut off and destroy a sizable portion of Pope's army while it was still scattered and on the march. At Bronner's farm, the Federals, though initially taken by surprise, had performed admirably, particularly John Gibbon's brigade of Midwesterners, which bore the brunt of the fighting. Stonewall Jackson gave his adversaries due credit. In his report of the fight, he wrote, with a mixture of both admiration and surprise, quote, The Federals maintained their ground with obstinate determination. After the firing died out, Rufus King and his officers decided to avoid a renewed Confederate assault in the morning by following Pope's initial directive to concentrate at Manassas Junction. But though King was unaware of the fact, Pope had changed his mind again. When word of the clash at Bronner's Farm reached him, Pope scrapped his plan to unite his army at Centerville. Instead, the various federal columns would hustle toward the scene of the just-concluded fight on the edge of the old Bull Run battlefield. Stonewall Jackson had been found, and Pope was once again determined to trap and destroy him while Stonewall was isolated, outnumbered, and vulnerable. Pope's fixation on Stonewall Jackson and his decision to persist in going after Jackson the next day, on August 29th, was both momentous and fateful. Pope clung to his mistaken belief that Stonewall was boxed in. Remarkably, the Union commander continued to almost willfully ignore Lee and Longstreet's approach with 30,000 new Confederate troops, and instead Pope chose to believe that Longstreet would not, could not, interfere with his plans to defeat Stonewall. But whether John Pope admitted it or not, in a few hours, the two wings of Lee's army would be reunited and would be poised for the crowning move of Robert E. Lee's great gamble. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Civil War Infantry Tactics, Training, Combat, and Small Unit Effectiveness by Earl J. Hess. Yeah, this recommendation was inspired, I guess, by the brutal stand-up infantry fight there at Bronner's Farm, where Gibbon's Brigade of Midwesterners began to earn a new nickname, the Iron Brigade. Anyway, uh, just a warning, but Hess's book might not be for everyone. It's an extremely well-written but detailed account of Civil War infantry tactics. If, however, you are interested in how foot soldiers in the Civil War were trained and how they maneuvered and fought on the battlefield, then you won't find any better book than this one. So that's Civil War Infantry Tactics, Training, Combat, and Small Unit Effectiveness by Earl J. Hess. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we just released the third and final members episode on the Battle of Secessionville, which took place outside Charleston, South Carolina, in June of 1862. So we've wrapped up that story arc 
and we'll be moving on to something new in January, probably the short but dramatic history of the rebel ironclad CSS Arkansas in the summer of 1862. But we do have two new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome, uh, Jeremiah and Chad. We also want to thank Jason for his donation to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. And then just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.